For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. His goat has been gotten. He's got a goat. Goat. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 27th, 2020, the Burn Baby Burn edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. One more week as David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. It's my last week as CEO of Atlas Obscura. Joining me from New Haven, the campus of Yale University, where she teaches in the law school, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. You made me feel like a fraud because I'm not teaching this semester. Oh, well. You do teach there generally. In the fall, if they reappoint me. Yeah. It's all very year to year. Oh. <sighs> Possibly unreappointed, Emily Bazelon. Yeah, yeah. In limbo. John Dickerson, who knows something about limbo, being a good Catholic <laughs> of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. You're in New York. Hello. On today's GabFest, is Bernie Sanders pulling away in the Democratic primary? Then the conviction of Harvey Weinstein and the state of Me Too. And then turmoil at the Supreme Court. Has it become just an arm of a right-wing ideological movement? What is going on with all these interesting things with justices and justices' spouses and the cases that justices are taking. Plus, Emily's got a big piece coming out. And we, of course, will have cocktail chatter. And GabFest listeners, we've got an exciting announcement. We have a live show coming up really soon. We are going to South by Southwest. We are going to be at South by on Tuesday, March 17th at 2 p.m. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that show or find out more information about that show. So if you're going to be in Austin for South by Southwest, you should definitely come and see us. Again, 2 p.m., Tuesday, March 17th, slate.com slash live to come see us in Austin at South by Southwest. The South Carolina primary is Saturday. There seem to be only two possible outcomes if you believe the polling pundits. Both of them depressing to me, but that's just me. The first is that Bernie Sanders will continue his surge and win a plurality of a flat fractured field and continue to be in the poll position to win the nomination. The other is that Joe Biden, who is polled very strongly in South Carolina over the past year, finally gets a win thanks to his excellent organizing among African-American voters. And that could potentially change the dynamic of the race going into Super Tuesday, which is just on Tuesday of next week. So, um, Emily, how is Sanders uh, creating a dominant position for himself in this race? Has he created a dominant position for himself in this race? Well, he's winning. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that helps. What Sanders has going for him is a very sticky base. It's not huge. It's not a majority of the Democratic voters, although in Nevada, he um, was up in the 40s percentile wise. So I guess that's close. But it's really loyal to him. And because the other lanes, however you want to think about it, are fractured because there are so many other candidates still vying to be the main moderate slash non-Bernie Sanders alternative, his sticky base is enough. And he is, um, I mean, he has had the most passionate and stable and durable, and think of what he's already endured, by the way, a heart attack, um, a very compelling challenger in Elizabeth Warren, who believes a lot of the things that he believes and also has a very strong argument, which we should get to, about why she would be more effective making those things happen, and yet she has not grabbed his voters or taken his voters away from him. Uh, he's benefited from this split field and from um, the inability of any of them to make intelligent criticisms of him. I mean, so, for example, I think going to uh, going at him on guns is just a, a total waste of time. Um which Why, he John? then talk about that some more. Oh, because I don't think I don't think people in the Democratic Party really think that if it comes down to it, Bernie Sanders is going to be weak on guns when it comes to when it comes to what a president can do on the question of guns. For example, if he were, you know, if he suddenly came out and said he was against abortion rights, that would be 
uh, catastrophic and deadly. But the reason he's surging and the reason he has power in the party can't just be punctured by a single issue on guns. And then he did what was rather deft in the in the debate, which is basically say, yeah, that was a bad vote. I shouldn't have, you know, I, I would, uh, I'd like to do that one over again. And here's been my record since then. And then it was also an opportunity for him to remind everybody that everybody on the stage had taken bad votes, including the person making the attack, Joe Biden, who voted uh, for the Iraq war. So it felt like he diffused that expertly in the moment. Um, I, th- I think the most effective, de- the most effective attack was the one Elizabeth Warren tried to launch um, when when she said basically we believe the same stuff it's just I'll be far more effective in getting it done which is as we've discussed before she's got a lot of evidence and a lot of um, talking points to make that case and then and then finally but but then she decided instead of well she went after Bloomberg uh, you know like with every possible weapon in the drawer with an instinct for the jugular her her basically she dropped her attacks against Uh, Sanders, for whom she has an instinct for the capillaries, as they say. Uh, So it's an interesting point, the the sort of combining points you guys made, where where it's that the rest of the field is um, so crowded that no one can come together. It's so crowded, and yet no one's really satisfied with any of the the other candidates. So it's not simply that there are too many of them. It's there are too many of them, and none of them seems to capture the imagination at all, which is, I mean, Warren has captured my imagination, but that's that's just me. I keep thinking about a column that David Brooks wrote, I think, last week, where he said that Bernie Sanders was the Democrat who had a myth to offer, meaning like a big story about what's wrong with America, parallel or as powerful as the myth that Donald Trump offered in 2016. This is David Brooks's argument. And Brooks hates the Sanders ideas about surfacing inequality and really talking about class struggle and class war. But I read that column and I thought, yeah, I think he's right. I think there's a way in which Sanders, because he is talking in such stark terms is really compelling to a lot of Democrats who feel incredibly frustrated with Donald Trump's vision of America. And the other candidates, I think this doesn't really include Elizabeth Warren, but some of the other candidates in being more moderate, even though they're being more realistic about what they could actually accomplish, they just sound, it sounds a little like weak tea when you hear their versions of it in the debates. Well, I, I always come back to the David Plotz theory of politics is that you whoever's having the most fun wins. And it's pretty clear that Sanders and Sanders' supporters are having the most fun. They are far and away having the most fun. I, I, I want to talk about the, these two competing visions about what is actually happening in the electorate. One is, which I think is the, the vision that Democratic elites and the moderate Democrats have, which is that Sanders has not expanded a coalition. There was low turnout in Iowa and in New Hampshire and even in Nevada, the places where there's been higher turnout, it's not driven by his voters. In fact, he's not turning out new people. Um, and that his the, the groups he is popular with, namely young voters and very liberal voters, are not highly expandable in the general election. Uh, then there's a alternative vision, which Peter Beinart laid out in, in a piece this week, which is that he is the most popular of the Democrats among all groups, that his actual, if you look at him among Democratic voters, he is by far the, the has the best favorability ratings, and therefore he's actually the one who's most likely to get them out in November. Um, which of these, John, these theories seems more credible to you? Wait, give me the first one again. I got the, the- first one. The first one is that, that He's just winning this this tight plurality, yeah. this motivated plurality, and he actually he isn't has no capacity to expand it in the general, uh, and well, because the, the groups where he is popular are not going to turn out in huge numbers in the general, young and very liberal people just don't. There aren't a lot of them. Well, that's been and that's been traditionally the case. His argument is a, is that he's got a something special, and b you know people thought it couldn't happen with Donald Trump either. I think let me open it up a little bit larger, which is that this is both an electoral question, and it's a governing question because for him, his success and well, although as somebody who says you know our elections don't help us with the presidency, in his case, his presidency is based on his ability in the elections, which is to build this enormous movement. And so the electoral test is also the governing test. And so the electoral test, there's a debate about the rules at the Democratic Convention and if a candidate arrives with the plurality, um, 
you know, how should that be handled? And I guess the question we are seeing with the Sanders candidacy goes to this elector- electability question, which is, is he going to turn out a certain kind of voter in, in Trump areas than any, that no other candidate would be able to? And so therefore, um, therefore, he has a special something that none of the other candidates have. Um, uh, or is and then there's also the other question, which is, is he going to ruin all the down ballot races um, because people won't turn out for Senate and House candidates or because a lot of the House candidates are not going to sign up for Medicare for all. And in fact, will have to distance themselves from him if they're running in districts that are more that are more moderate. But in the electoral test for him, it seems to me that one of the questions is. And this goes to the behavior of his supporters, which has been somewhat discussed, is that if you can't convince a large number of people through methods that aren't overly doctrinaire, if you if you have to just sort of treat people who don't immediately jump on the bandwagon as either dumb or um, having bad perfidious. faith, perfidious or basically a heretic against all American values, you're just dragooning them into a position that doesn't seem to be a stable basis for the kind of political revolution that he's claiming is going to not only get him elected, but then succeed in passing all of these things for which even there's not um, um, uh, overwhelming support in the Democratic Party. So it seems to me it's a test. And the fact that some of his supporters have a, a mode of operating that's different than the supporters of any other Democratic candidate is a sign of of some difficulty in this argument of his that he's going to build a revolution that's going to sweep the country. I, I think uh, I think that's a key test for him, which is a little bit beyond the scope of your question, David. But it's it's um, it'll be interesting to watch. So, Emily, one of the things that seems to have changed in the dynamic of the race since even just since last week is the well that Michael Bloomberg boomlet that sure was quick. Is it going to turn out that Bloomberg um, committed an act of homicide against Joe Biden by entering the race? Is it and really ended up helping Sanders, which I think is the last thing he wanted to do? Or or is it too early to, to make any judgment about that? I mean, it's a little early because he hasn't even been on the ballot yet, but he's not doing himself any favors at these debates. Um, I suppose you could argue that that's not what he has to offer and that his running on competence, especially at this moment when coronavirus is threatening the world, could still resonate. Lots of people are going to see his ads and not see his worst debate clips. I do think, though, that his notion that he needed to be the moderate alternative as opposed to building up somebody else in the race, it just seems incredibly hubristic right now. Well, uh He's just so bad at making his case, too, by the way. I mean, it's just he really um, – I mean, look, debates, whatever. But it, it just seems to just me his case some is, ads, is so John, much You'll cl- feel better. <laughs> his but case I don't is, think – Go ahead. I just think hubristic is the wrong word to use to describe someone who is the three-time mayor of New York City, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the country, and one of the best philanthropists in the country, and who's, you know, made incredible investments in politics. If it's you're not a terrible candidate, like then hubristic it's is not hubristic exactly for somebody right like word. that to say you should run for president. He is doing a poor job at the retail part and the presenting himself to the public part. But I don't think you can, <laughs> in truth, say it's hubristic. I think you can say he's a bad candidate, but it's well, not hubristic. Well, let me. Oh, come uh, on. Uh, I'm so unconvinced by that. Like, he made tons of money. He ran New York City. He did some terrible things and some good things as mayor. And, like, that means he should just trump into this very crowded field because he has a lot not of that money. He should trump please. in. He. He has yes, he has a lot of money, which is one of his strengths. He, he, other people have strengths, which is they're great rhetoricians. His strength is he earned a lot of money, credible as a businessman, can deploy it, has proven that he can deploy it usefully. Like money is a is a tool and a weapon in politics, and that is one of Bloomberg's. You know, it's the biggest piece of artillery he has. So okay, what so because is the he shame can buy of him using it, <laughs> he's not he doing. He's not doing a good job. Oh, I mean, this is. I just like this is he's my not argument his against way into him. Con- if the main thing he has going for him is is gazillion dollars and the fact, as he practically said on the base stage, that he, quote, bought, I guess he didn't quite yes. finish the verb, but almost, you know, the great. Democratic wins in Congress in 2018. Like, no, this is not the road that the Democratic Party needs to be going down. No, no, no. Um, first of all, first of all, you want presidents to be hubristic or else they, they won't be able to do the job. So that's that's that doesn't... But secondly, Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat and he's saying he should be the nominee of the Democratic Party. So there's hubris to go around for everybody here. 
that's that's a separate claim from should he be able to buy the election. Um, but whether he has the st- whether he has the standing to make the claim, which seems to me to be a totally plausible claim, which he's not very good at making, which is. You may not like me on for reasons X, Y, and Z, but there's nobody here by a factor of a lot who has ever run an organization of the size and complexity of the federal government and achieved the goals both in government, business, and private philanthropy that everybody here agrees need to be achieved, facing considerable opposition both in all three of those realms and therefore has a track record that that demolishes anybody even on the stage and since people presumably want to get the things done that they believe in attacking climate science uh getting a handle on gun violence in america it's not crazy to say previous success might have something to do with future prospects which is again separate and apart from whether you should be able to buy your way into that but whether he has the track record to be able to make the claim that seems to me he has at least that so there was this very uh, awkward ex- bit this week for Sanders where in an Anderson Cooper interview, he ended up defending statements he had made a while ago. I can't even remember how long ago uh, in praise of Fidel Castro's Cuba and the universal literacy and universal health care that Castro's Cuba supplied, even as it was a brutal dictatorship. What is what is Sanders doing there, John or Emily? Why why is he? continuing to hold fast to this? What does he gain? Why can't he simply just do the smart thing and, and say like, yes, you know, this was a, an accomplishment, but this is a brutal dictatorship of the worst sort. And it's, you know, we should do everything in our power to have it change and, and to, you know, we continue to have Cuba develop in a different direction. Why can't he just say the, the thing that we all know to be true? Well, I think for an authenticity, I was... Uh, for a lot of these policies before anybody else was kind of candidate, it's hard to then start tailoring yourself too much to the current environment. So he so he can't completely divorce himself from... And by the way, he probably still believes what he essentially said. I think the, what was confusing to me, and again, this is why his opponents are not very good, is somebody watching this, why does this, any of this matter? Why does this matter about Bernie Sanders? Why does it matter about our country? Why is this important? They talked a lot about it at the debate. I don't know why it's important. And if it is an important subject of a debate, what's the right position to have and why is that the right position to have? Until you've defined those things, it's a bunch of like, it seems so attenuated from either what people live in their daily lives or what they should care about in in their country. So maybe I'm crazy, but it felt like actually not that big a deal for him. Although... I think the, the the one part of this obviously is that Cuba, socialism, communism, that whole hairball, this is a Jonathan Chait argument, that Sanders' ability to diffuse those attacks in a general election context are a part of the electability rap against him. So I get this in a kind of political sort of punditry part, but if you're an, an opponent attacking him, I, I there nobody was doing a very good job explaining why this was such a big issue. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I thought listening to him that his emphasis was off. So he did say autocracy is bad. I'm not in favor of dictators. I get that Fidel Castro was bad for that reason. But then he pivots so swiftly to talking about Kim Jong-un or whatever his preferred topic is. You don't feel like he's really grappling with the problems in Cuba. I mean, he's right about healthcare and literacy in Cuba, but that doesn't mean that those were worth the trade-off in freedom, which was like really a big cost that Cubans paid. And for me listening, what I felt a little bit of my heart drop was that The strength of Sanders is also his weakness. Like, he is rigid. He has been saying the same things really passionately for 40 years. Some of those things, I think he's right, are not radical and are about human rights and a vision of America of more equality and um, social cohesion. But he's not showing kind of flexibility at a moment when that would help him attract more support and when you feel like he could afford to do that, right? Like his base is going to stay with him and now he needs to signal that he's not such a purist that he'll get into office or or just become the Democratic nominee and be unable to make room for people who are close to him but not exactly standing in the same place as him. Last piece before we go. So Right now, it does feel like Bernie Sanders is our most likely Democratic nominee, and we would have a Trump-Sanders general election. What 
are the things that that Sanders opponents within the Democratic Party should hope for? What are the scenarios coming out of Saturday and then potentially mm. out of Tuesday that should give them hope, possibility that there could be another outcome? It's an interesting question. Um, in no particular order, I think they need to hope for a strong, clear showing either for Biden or one of the non-Bernie Sanders lane opponents, which they can claim is either support in the quote-unquote real part of the party, which is to say the more diverse part of the party coalition, for at, at least somebody who's not Sanders, whether they want to go all the way to the saying it's for, for Joe Biden or not, um, that's another matter. But the idea, if you, are, if you are trying to make the case against Bernie Sanders and you're an establishment Democrat, you want at least the idea out there that basically he has a ceiling, that the majority of the party is actually against him, it's just the vote is split, and that uh, the more we learn about him, the more problematic uh, he becomes as a candidate. And what you don't want is for him to get to the general election and this closet full of troubles to come bursting open and become daily weaponry for Republicans, which will hurt not only Sanders, but then all the down-ballot candidates. So you need somebody to do well. Then you need a series of these videos from the past or issues that he has uh, to come out. And then for him to misplay one of them, I thought in the debate he was actually very um, good at diffusing the attacks against him, making the case for his economic argument. Um, you know, he didn't wither under the scrutiny the way other candidates have. Um, so if you're in the anti-Bernie case, you want you want him to wither under the scrutiny um, because it just reaffirms that idea that once he gets attacked in the general, he won't be able to handle it. So you're either a hoping that you create the um, the permission structure for for a Biden or Biden like candidate to continue to rise in the future contests, or you begin the narrative for a contested convention in which Sanders arrives just with the plurality. It helps that he wrote the rules there that would potentially undo him, as Elizabeth Warren pointed out. And you would hope then that they're the sort of the empire would strike back uh, in some kind of extremely ugly, but nevertheless, um, uh, you know, convention wrangling. None of those, by the way, you asked what would be good. None of those are very good outcomes. I mean, they're, they're very, there's a lot of blood on the floor if any of that happens. I like the idea that, that, that uh, moderate Democrats should hope for an empire strikes back scenario. Uh, who is the Han Solo who will be who will be preserved, cryogenically preserved in that in that one? Slate Plus, you get bonus segments on our podcast and on other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com/slash/gabfest plus, you can become a member today. And today, in honor of the new Hillary Mantel historical novel, the trilogy completing her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell, we're going to talk about what should be the next great historical novel that someone writes. What is the personage or episode in history that deserves a massive, fantastical, novelistic treatment. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Harvey Weinstein, the hard 
Hollywood producer, was convicted of two out of five felonies he had been charged with by a New York state jury. Convicted, sorry, by the state jury. He not, was not charged by the New York state jury. He was carted off to a hospital unit at Rikers Island. He now faces up to 29 years in New York state prison. He also is going to go on trial, or he's been charged also in California with other sexual assault crimes. The conviction maybe closes or advances one chapter in the most appalling of the Me Too stories, or one of the most appalling of the Me Too stories, the one that started it all when the New York Times and the New Yorker published stories detailing allegations from women who had kept quiet about Weinstein's assaults over many, many years because of his power in Hollywood. So, Emily, it is very unusual, actually, to get a conviction in a case like this. So even though Weinstein was acquitted of three charges, including probably the most serious charge he faced, it is unusual. So why were they able to get this? Yeah. So, I mean, what was unusual about this case in terms of its potential weakness for prosecution was that the two um, women whose cases were going to, like, support the rape and sexual assault charges, the main um, complainants or witnesses, they had both had relationships with Weinstein after these sexual assaults in which they were, you know, emailing or texting in a friendly way. They had slept with him afterward in a way that they um, acknowledged was consensual. They had continued to seek him out. And so usually when prosecutors have evidence like that, they don't have what they think of as a, quote, perfect victim. And they worry that juries are going to hear all that and think, I don't believe you. Like, if something was so bad, why did you go back to this man The problem, of course, with that kind of um, skepticism about rape allegations is that a lot of times cases, especially um, involving a powerful person like Weinstein, they're just like more complicated than that. And victims may absolutely have the experience of being raped that they describe, but then try to kind of move beyond that or bury it or stifle it in some way because they fear this person or they're currying favor with them and hoping to have some kind of more successful transaction effectively. And in the past, prosecutors have just been so usually unwilling to touch these kinds of cases. There's a law professor named Deborah Turkheim who writes about this a lot, and she has written about what she calls the credibility discount. The idea that there are just so many stages along the way when people report rape to the police or when prosecutors review a case in which they just discount the credibility of victims, especially if there's this kind of reason to disbelieve them. In the Weinstein case, I think partly just because of the enormous publicity and, you know, huge just like upswell of rage and fury from Hollywood, from everywhere at Weinstein, you saw the New York Manhattan DA's office go ahead anyway. And then you saw a jury believe these women. There was supporting testimony from a few other women, which was probably helpful, although, David, as you described, the most serious counts the jury acquitted on or didn't convict. And that involves some of the supportive testimony. So I think it's a really interesting development legally in terms of whether there are other cases like this that are more likely to be prosecuted. I'm not sure. And then just just the result in itself. I mean, we are talking about one of the most powerful people in Hollywood who is now in jail. And that is just like an incredible fall from from grace. I hope it's it's shocking to think that Harvey Weinstein ever had grace. Yeah, I was going to say, can Maybe we find grace another is a terrible term for that? Word. Power. Fall from yes. power. Fall Let's from do power. that. Yeah. Let's say that instead. Yeah. Um, Emily, on your on the point about the, why these cases are so hard to convict, it is I I really get um, it gets very mentally complicated because when you think about most crimes for which people are convicted, there it, there's usually like things which are very. Um, specific hard evidence. If you steal money from a bank and money appears in your bank account as having stolen or you steal an object, you have the object. If you commit a murder and you've, you've, uh, you know, the blood is found all over your body. In some of these sexual assault and rape cases, that, that evidence exists. And the ones that are easiest to convict, you have, you have a rape kit, you have evidence, you know, physical harm, but lots of them, there's, it's not that necessarily the events were ambiguous. It's just that the, there isn't the definitive way to show that the events as one person says they occurred occurred because you if you don't have camera evidence if you don't have necessarily physical evidence if you and if you don't have a pattern of behavior by the 
accused. Um, Though here we it, had a pattern it, it, of behavior. We, here, we, here we had a pattern of behavior, really but absent clear. a pattern of behavior. Right. Absent a pattern of behavior, it's hard to imagine. If Weinstein had been charged with one of these counts in a total vacuum, you, you, you can imagine like nothing would have happened. And so it does mean it does mean that these cases are not quite like they, they end up they occupy a different space than a lot of other criminal activity that people are charged with because of that. In a lot of times, they just don't leave behind evidence in the way that other th- other things leave behind evidence. Well, I feel like you're sort of blurring two things here. So there's the question of corroborating evidence. And sometimes in situations where people know each other and there's a rape allegation, there is corroborating evidence. Like the victim went and told a friend or they're like upset emails and texts or just other evidence that comes yes. into play. We didn't have that kind of corroboration in this case. And I think you're right that if there had just been one charge in isolation, it would have been really difficult to to convict Weinstein. But then there's this other question of a pattern of behavior and even a pattern in which someone uses sex um, as a way of dominating less powerful people and then continues to do that in a way that, like, allows them to get away with the abuse. And I think in Weinstein's case, that was overwhelming. I mean, it was both very present to the jury and the testimony from these supporting witnesses, but also in the court of public opinion. Like, it's just really hard to – like, that is how – we have so much evidence against Harvey Weinstein, some of it barred by the statute of limitations, but very much present. And so maybe we're at a point where if you have one of those forms of corroborating or supporting evidence, you Mm. can bring a successful prosecution. In some ways, this case is like the Bill Cosby case in that sense. Right, right. Do you think um, – I, I just want to make a point and then I have a question for you, John. Like I, I, I asked this of Jody Cantor when she was on our show a few months ago and she, of course, is the one of the reporters who broke the original Weinstein story in the New York Times and, and wrote uh, – she said about that uh, experience. With Megan Toohey, but we should I, say. Her with Megan Toohey. The, the grossness of Weinstein mm-hmm. – I think is really germane to this case. I think that a lot of what has made this the the uh, emblematic case, the one that people have gotten most attached to, is that he is a disgusting-looking person, and I, he may and he, is, he seems to be a disgusting person. Also, he is a morally disgusting person, which is more relevant. But he is a person who people find physically repellent, and with these actresses who uh, are you know whose beauty is part of their you know their business and. And I just – I think we uh, – I think it's telling. There was these these drawings, these photos of Weinstein, which then reemerged as court drawings of the terrible acne on his back and his the, – the weird way his genitals look. And they were – these were people are handing these around. It's like, look at this disgusting person. And I, I think we just need to be cautious about um, putting too much on – a lot of people are ugly in their soul who are not physically repellent. There are lots of people who are who are disgusting and horrible and – criminal who look like angels. John, do you think that this puts a cap on Me Too? This, the, 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 does the conviction move Me Too forward in any way? Uh, and does this you know, represent some, something that uh, is important and will cause behavior to change? Or is this a, just a single anomalous case? Because we haven't had really other criminal convictions, I don't think, coming out of Bill Me Too. Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. I guess, doesn't that predate it? I guess yeah, it's, I guess but it's, it's all a piece. similar kind yeah. of – anyway, go okay. ahead, John. Sorry. Yeah, good, no, good point. Good yeah, point. So I don't know. I mean, I do – one thing that I do feel um, – and I'm uh, – <laughs> I feel like I feel like Pete Buttigieg um, – giving an answer on the lived black experience it's a little it's well out of my well out of my range however having said that he gave the answer that at least michael bloomberg should have stumbled towards uh in the debate when he talked about you know the the what it's like to be an african-american even in in america's culture today but so with that preface the 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 women who were not even directly related to harvey weinstein but obviously for those who were and who may not have even been the um target of his most uh uh, putrid uh, assaults the sense of justice and the fact that the system can however like work and that there are remedies for men who behave this way and but to your point david it may be even more the case that men who look um beautiful on the outside um are able to get away with more of that evil behavior um just the sense for all of the women who have had to to um put up with some version of this in their life, I can imagine there is some 
feeling that 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 as imperfect as the new world is, that there is a greater um, amount of justice when something like this happens. I think that's again. I'm, I may be totally out of my lane, and Emily will correct me quickly if I am. But the second thing is, I also feel like the danger here. There are several, but one is okay. This is done. He was this monster. Uh, the monster's in his box. And, you know, some people have done some trainings and we all watch what we say, but it's taken care of. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that you start to get um, people basically not going to root causes and thinking, you know, there's kind of where the, the backlash sets in. And then people say, you know, the, the um, Me Too's kind of gone too far. There's there, um, you know, there are cases in which they're not they're not full Harvey Weinstein's, and they've been lumped in with him, and that's not fair. And that that, that there's part more of that that's a part of a conversation now. And I don't know what this verdict does with respect to that, but I feel like the conversations about about the complexity of this um, are not are not as are not as strong as I'd like them to be. Actually, Emily, I, that leads me to a question for you. I think it was in New York Magazine talked to a bunch of the women who had made some of the more uh, publicized Me Too accusations and looked at their life You know, now a year or two, three years after that. And it hasn't been great. It is not something where you, you, you make this accusation and you're lionized as a hero and, and your life changes for the good and, and anything like that happens. It has been extremely difficult for people. And you also have the case of the president who has been credibly charged with literally dozens and dozens of sexual predatory, sexual assaults, uh, all kinds of disgusting sexual behavior involving violence and bullying and pressure and coercion. Yet he has been unscathed by it and the women who've made accusations have been heavily scathed. So do you think that actually the situation – for women who want to come forward who have been victims has changed? I mean, I think it's really hard. You pay a price by becoming someone whose part of your identity is that you're making these allegations. Like you have to talk about serious private matters. There's still some stigma attached to that. And being a witness in a prosecution is like a big undertaking. You know, I also read that story um, thinking about all of those problems. I do think, though, that there is a deterrent effect in convicting someone like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, if you are a man sexually harassing or assaulting people in the workplace, I hope you are scared right now and thinking twice about doing it. To have someone so powerful be brought down, like, that should be a really clear warning to people that's different from the kinds of, you know, rote trainings that we've all gotten used to doing, like, you know, in our inboxes. I think this is a different a different kind of um, sounding of the alarm. I would just note that there are four old white guys running for president right now. Donald Trump, Michael Bloomberg, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders. Three of them have stains on them here or have things that have been charged against them or involvement. Of varying degrees. And let's just Trump, be clear. varying yeah, degrees. So I that, mean, yeah. Trump, Trump is way over, way, way, way over in one direction. What happened with Bloomberg, mysterious. He seems to have, you know, fostered an environment maybe that was a little, you know, body, probably his word. Maybe uh, sexual harassment be, might others? be other people's words. Yeah, sexual yeah, harassment right, might be another word. Right. Is that B O U G H T Y? Um, (laughs) Very well. Well played, John. And then Biden, there's some touching accusations. Sanders, as far as I know, there's no one's said anything. But I I wonder if we look in a generation, whether the the people who are now in their 30s, whether the men who are now in their 30s, it's going to be the same thing where a lot of them will have had something in their past that is a little, a little bit a little bit iffy or worse or yeah, that's, or maybe not to, maybe they're learning maybe something Let's yeah, yeah right. I, I, I think so I, I think they I think my question is has an answer which is that I don't think it will be the same Good. I do and I do think I've seen a fair number of um, the training videos and things that corporations um, make their employees go through and many of them are awful and you can when you watch them you feel the people basically doing 10 other tasks and just hitting the click bar to move on and move through it and it's not very useful but 
I think there are companies and institutions that are doing a better job than that. And the, the Pointer Institute is, has put together a sexual harassment um, program for newsrooms that I watched, and it was fantastic about power and how power works in workplaces and all the different ways in which it works. Um, not just the person who's doing the assaulting, but then also how the power dynamic changes as people get involved. And it was incredibly instructive. And I could, as I was watching it, I could imagine somebody going into it thinking like, oh, I got to sit through this thing. And then having revelations, not only with respect to the specific way to handle situations, but then how to create a workplace environment in which those situations don't arrive. The proactive uh, things you can do to just be more aware and mindful of relationships and power and how it's distributed. And that all felt incredibly useful and also putting people in the mindset of um, understanding power and how it works in the workplace, which is just a, a larger beneficial. So to the extent that that stuff is spreading out through the culture for the next generation, I think there, there will be actual learning that takes place uh, as a result of this. Big doings at the Supreme Court. We have the president attacking two liberal justices saying they shouldn't be allowed to rule on any cases involving him. You have the court deciding to weigh into a monumental discrimination case involving adoption by same-sex couples. Have Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court justice, engaged in a secret campaign or secretive campaign, I should say, to purge the federal government of people who oppose anything that Donald Trump wants to do. And now we have a huge piece forthcoming from you, Dr. <laughs> Emily Bazelon, J.D., about the God. dangerous threat that Neil Gorsuch poses to traditional jurisprudence. What the heck is going on at the Supreme Court, Emily? <laughs> So, I mean, I think the jockeying you saw this week is Trump's um, usual preference for offense versus defense. So Laura Ingram um, made it sound as if Sotomayor had, you know, personally attacked uh, the Trump administration. She had not done that. Sotomayor wrote like a straight up dissent from the conservative justices allowing the Trump administration to get an emergency stay so the public charge rule could go into effect. This, of course, is the rule that makes it um, a lot harder for immigrants to get green cards and um, permanent status. And Sotomayor was just saying, hey, government, you keep running to us for emergency stays, essentially leapfrogging over the normal um, processes in the lower courts where courts hear the merits of the case before they're decided and before we hear an appeal. And Sotomayor was saying, look, we don't grant exceptions like this in most executions. Now we're granting them over and over again for the Trump administration. The standard here is supposed to be really high. It's supposed to be irreparable harm. That's what you have to show to get this kind of emergency stay. And she is worried about kind of basic fairness. So she was making a really like not standard because it was I mean, she was making a big deal of this argument, but it was very much within the legal bounds. And Trump claimed otherwise for his own purposes, perhaps because of this story about Ginny Thomas, which was leading to calls for Justice Thomas, um, Ginny Thomas's husband, to recuse himself. So I think there's just a way in which politicizing the court has become a kind of weapon for Trump. I mean, we've seen him go after judges repeatedly, and this was like the latest version of it. My piece is trying to come at this from a different angle by taking seriously the big ideas behind the conservative ascendancy at the Supreme Court, which remain originalism and textualism. These theories about how you do interpretation, um, originalism is supposed to be about how the Constitution was understood at the time it was written and ratified. And textualism is a normal law. You just look at the words on the page. You don't think about um, the context or the purpose or the consequences of of a ruling. And Justice Gorsuch is the latest um, salesperson at the court. He has a new book where he was really pushing the ideas in a very absolutist way. And I just wanted to go back and like look at their lineage, look at how they'd changed over time. And what interested me the most were all the criticisms from conservatives about the inconsistencies with which these theories are applied. And did you come down to a feeling about the um, because the law it has, I, I think, a little more, um, or I should say, a little, uh, it has cartilage and isn't as brittle as some of the breakages that we see in politics. For example, the total abandonment of any concern about debt and deficits, um, which were the the guiding obsession for Republicans under the Obama administration, is just gone completely. Um, 
and which, which uh, uh, as we talked about, Mulvaney mentioned last week. And that, you know, was once the, the star by which everybody piloted their boats. So, so as you looked at this, um, do you find, you know, the normal cartilage that's required in any belief system uh, or any uh, regimen for analysis? Or did you find that it's become more used or was used and is less now as a, as a pretext for saying any old damn thing you want? So, yeah, that's a those are good parallels and a good question. I mean, I would say this, like every theory over time tries to absorb the criticism and then becomes like more vague in general as a result and kind of loses mm. some of its power. And I think that's part of what you see with originalism and textualism. And I, that I, like I wouldn't hold that against the theories, except that Gorsuch and other promoters of these theories claim that this is their um, call to superiority. They're saying we're the only judges who do things objectively or, as Gorsuch says, in a value neutral way. And increasingly, Gorsuch has claimed to be an absolutist about this. He says he applies originalism in every case about the Constitution. So that's just not really possible because there have been so many layers of law that have been added over the centuries by the Supreme Court that if you have any interest in the Supreme Court's precedents, the law has just moved legions, leagues away from the actual Constitution. I mean, one thing I was thinking about this piece is that When we talk about the Constitution, it sounds like we're talking about the document, the text, but actually we mean Mm. constitutional law. We mean all the things that have been added to it over the years. And the method of originalism, this idea that all you're going to look at is what people understood the words to mean in 1787 or 1868, though most conservatives don't pay as much attention to 1868 – That idea is very recent. It's modern. It's from the 1980s. That's not really how the Supreme Court did its work for centuries in any meaningful way. And I, I, so I feel like there's, that's the inconsistency that matters to me. It's that you have a theory that is necessarily selective, but then you don't admit that. You don't say what your theory for making exceptions is. And then I think you're vulnerable to the standard intellectual critique about theories, which is like, okay, well, if you're going to pick and choose when to apply it, why is your method any more consistent or objective than anyone else's? Is it better to think of this then as originalism, as increasing the gravitational pull of the Constitution on the debate, which is, you know, you're calling yourself an originalist, but really what you're trying to do is just... um, Use that as a as a bigger part of your argument for why something should go one way or the other. And while you can never reach total originalism, you're trying to be, you know, asymptotic, if that's even a word, whereas you get as close as possible using, you know, a, 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 a defensible set of principles that are that are founded in the original idea of the Constitution. I mean, I think that's for sure the claim. But I think you can also look at this and say this is really about politics. And that is sort of an obvious point to make, but it's very much not the point that the the originalists (laughs) say they're making, right? Like they say they're separating law from politics. And if in fact their theory is not consistent or they're doing the originalist research into history badly, which is another problem um, in some of these recent cases like the Second Amendment, big supposed originalist victory from Justice Scalia a decade ago, and then Justice Gorsuch's biggest opinion, which is this um, more obscure case called U.S. versus Gundy, but is going to come back because that's all about Congress's regulatory power and ability to delegate policymaking to federal agencies, like the whole administrative state. If you're not doing it in the way that you say that you're supposed to be doing it. Like, again, it's this, it, that's the kind of question here. Like, you can say that it's a set of defensible principles, but what is it really getting you in the end? Right. I was I was looking at, like, the effective benefit, but what you're saying is that they're using this claim that it's separate from politics as a as a way to say, and therefore, what we claim, what we say, because we've been able to divine that separation, is that much more powerful and just and right. So they're using it both in its own terms, but then also to make themselves bigger in in any given argument because they've somehow been able to separate themselves from politics. Yeah, exactly. And 
just to make one more point here, I mean, every judge looks at the words on the page of a law, right? Like that is a normal thing. You're interpreting a statute. Judges don't ignore what's there in front of them. And when you're interpreting the Constitution, they consider the meaning that the founders thought they were giving it. The question is whether you do that exclusively in a way that then is supposed to wall you off from considering the purpose of a law or the underlying consequences of your ruling. And so Justice Breyer, who is a real pragmatist on the court and has really been trying to warn that this textualism and originalism creates a very wooden understanding of the Constitution, he shows up in my piece to be like, hey, wait a second, what are we really doing here? And my piece starts out with Justice Gorsuch in the case about gay and transgender employment rights before the court in October, like faced with the the real implications of his own textualism, which would seem to be ruling in favor of the gay and transgender plaintiffs, he asked a question about consequences, um, claiming, sort of suggesting there would be massive social upheaval from ruling in favor of these plaintiffs. And I tried to use that to show the difficulty of sticking with the theory when it leads you to results, which presumably you're not inclined to. Um, And so that's going to be a really interesting test for Justice Gorsuch. Emily, let's close, actually, when we as we talk about consequences with this big case that the Supreme Court is now going to hear about foster care in Philadelphia. What what is the issue here? Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, so Philadelphia looked at the way in which Catholic Charities was participating in its foster care network and said, you know what, Catholic Charities, you're discriminating against gay couples. You're not placing kids with them. And so we're going to leave you out of our network. We're going to enforce our anti-discrimination law and say that if you're not going to accept gay couples, we're not going to have you um, as part of our foster care. And the court is taking a challenge from Catholic Charities. So this is a really big issue. It's sort of like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from Colorado about the baker who didn't want to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. But in a lot of ways, it's bigger than that because it's about, you know, foster care and by implication adoption. And it's really about this question like, can a state decide that its desire to prevent discrimination, in this case against gay people, matters more than including a religious organization, which says that its religious values don't allow it to place kids with gay people. So it's like a direct conflict about a very important and contested issue. And uh, it's now on the docket for next term. So next fall, presumably the court will hear argument. Is there any way to be in the foster care system that's outside of the government? I mean, could you could Catholic charities participate in foster care, but in some way that is separate from the state of Pennsylvania or the city of Philadelphia working with them? I don't think there is. I, think I don't foster think care so. Is intrinsically those are a government yeah. I mean, activity. adoption yeah. agencies can be private, but the foster care network comes from the government. Like there has to be a finding right. of abuse and neglect and a placement. So I don't think so. And presumably, if if the if the Catholic Charities prohib- prohibition was we will not place with mixed race couples, or we won't place with, you know, Asian American couples, like that would everybody like no, you can't do that. That would be pretty clear, right? Right. I mean, this is where you know. I think we've talked about this on previous shows, but during the civil rights era, we did not see courts say, okay, you know lunch store counter. You don't have to, um, you're, you're a business open to the public, but you actually don't have to um, let black people eat at your lunch counter because you have a religious objection somehow to, you know, interracial mixing. Like, no, we did not accept that defense. And so I think the parallel you're raising is a big problem for these religious organizations. They make the argument that their beliefs about, you know, LGBT people or I really they would say like LGBT activities are different. But the question is like whether it really is different. Right. But what is the status of LGBT people and discrimination federally? I mean, there's there is obviously there's a right to marriage, but is but discrimination is federally permitted? 
still? In some contexts, yes. And that's actually relates back to this employment case I was talking about a minute ago. Um, so there are there is not a federal law that provides uh, blanket protection against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation throughout the country. It's missing explicitly in the employment context. And so this case I was talking about is about whether the provision in Title VII, the federal employment law that prevents discrimination on the basis of sex. The question is whether that applies just on its face to LGBT people. Some states have erected anti-discrimination laws on the basis of sexual orientation for situations like the one that Philadelphia is grappling with. And now the question is whether those the court is going to allow states to continue to enforce those laws. Can I ask one quick final question on this? Where does the court and the conservatives generally stand on religious practices by non-favored religions and cults. So they are, there's a lot of move to stand up for Christians and Jews and Christian practice and Jewish practice and defending their practices. But where do they stand on religions that are out of the mainstream and things that they might want to do that contravene some federal law? Are they as, as they adamant about protecting that? Well, I mean... There were there was a couple of cases last year. Do you remember this about whether people on death row could see a chaplain? And one of the people who wanted to do that was a Muslim person asking to see an imam. And the court, the conservatives on the court treated that person differently from the person who was Christian who was trying to see um, a Christian clergy. Yes. Really? And so I think. Really? Right, yes, really. And so I, I think what you are seeing really? there. Yeah. Right. God. Yeah. It raises questions about um, consistency. Um, yeah. God, that's poof. Oh, that gets my goat, as they say. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are uh, celebrating the arrival of the leap year. When you're celebrating, finally, you're five and a half, five and a quarter years old, and so you can legally drink because you were born on leap day in 19 you couldn't have been born on leap day in 1999 could you because there was no leap day in 1999 oh well doesn't make any sense what are you going to chatter about john dickerson um, i don't know i was worried there for a moment you're just gonna go off and talk to yourself for a while i'm glad to have have the show back um um, well, but it's a two-chatter, very quick. The first is Mary Beth, Mary Beth Gorsuch, which is the second time that name has been mentioned in this podcast. But she is a pitcher for the LSU softball team. And she threw a perfect game in which she, she 21 up, 21 down. But then, not only was it a perfect game, she threw 21 first-pitch strikes, which meant every batter she faced, the first pitch she threw them was a strike. That's a, a, just an amazing and incredible achievement, and um, she should That's be. an amazing achievement, but can I pause for a second? Yeah. I think that um, women's softball needs a fix. There is a, it is a really <laughs> – at the highest level, it's a really low-scoring game. They pitch too fast, and it's very hard to hit, and it makes the game kind of boring. This is it needs, it needs a fix. This is your women's softball mansplaining by David Plotz today. Not mansplaining. How is it mansplaining? You're man fixing. You're saying like, here's what's wrong with your sport. Yeah, but it's that's not mansplaining. Man fixing. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just. I'm a big sports person, and I. I've having watched women's softball on ESPN because there's parts of the year when there's nothing. There's no. There's no sports that I like. And so I end up watching baseball and softball, and you're like, that is terrible. And softball, baseball needs huge fixes too. Not going to say baseball doesn't need huge fixes, but women's softball needs fixes. And one of the fixes is it's it's too much a pitcher's game. My that is all. <laughs> my second chatter is that Earth has a new moon. Did you guys know this? That there is a new moon cruising around the Earth, and it it's going to be there probably for maybe a couple of years it was uh, just discovered. It's about the size of a car. It was designated 2020 CD3, and it's gravitationally bound to the Earth. Oh, no, wait, sorry. Gravitationally, um, uh, sorry, hold on, sorry. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I think I may have gotten the wrong, I may have 2020, no, see, that is the right wait, one. Wait, is gravity a yeah, thing? Okay. Do we understand sorry, how it sorry. works? Okay. It's called 2020 CD3. It's been gravitationally bound to the Earth for about three years. It's not going to stick around here forever. <laughs> but what I love is that the announcement of the discovery of this minor little planet the size of a car, which is one of our little moons now, was posted at the Minor Planet Center. 
which I just think is an amusing name for a place. Um, anyway, the orbit's not stable, so um, like 2006 RH-120, which hung around uh, for about a year before leaving the orbit, it will leave. So, um, you know, get your uh, enthusiasm in for the moment before it takes off and spins out into the blackness. Is it further away than the moon or closer than the moon? This you have you have uh, found one of the, the limits. Limit <laughs> you have one found one of the limits of my knowledge, which uh, which is basically in a circumference around everything I just said. Okay, uh, Emily, what is your chatter? Um, I am really interested this week in a story from Montgomery County, which are the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, where. The two top public defenders were fired this week after filing a brief supporting bail reform. And this story is, I mean, it's about the struggle over criminal justice reform, of course. It's also about the independence of public defender offices. Turns out that there's just like no real rule about this. And lots of different counties and cities and states do this differently. In Montgomery County, the county commissioners were just able to fire these public defenders. What the public defenders were trying to spotlight was that in their county, 9,000 people are arrested every year, and they go to see a judge who decides whether to set bail and often sets bail in high amounts and holds them in jail. All of that happens without any lawyer present if you can't afford one. And so all the public defenders were saying was, hey, at this initial bail hearing, we should be able to show up and represent people before they have to pay tons of money and often go to jail because they can't afford to pay. That got them fired. And that seems like just kind of a crazy outcome. And yet it is possible not just in Montgomery County, but in a lot of other places, too. So a story worth paying attention to. Wow. All right. I would like to chatter about a book I am reading called Zed by Joanna Cavena. Have either of you read it? It's a novel. No, it's it a good. Dystopian need a novel. Novel. And it's wonderful. It is a it is Orwellian in the classic sense of a uh, dystopic future where language has been manipulated in all kinds of ways. But it's a very, very, very funny book about a future in which there is a algorithms rule everything. And the algorithms are suddenly maybe not so good. There's something is wrong in them. Something funky is happening and weird things have started to happen. And the book is very funny and very dark and super evocative, actually, of things that are going on in China where, where people who suddenly find themselves outside the electronic funds system, which people use to run their lives because they have crossed, so they've committed some so, anti-social act and they're expelled from the communications network that everyone needs and they become unpeople and there's something similar going on in Zed. So I really recommend it. Dark, funny novel by Joanna Cavena. Is it sci-fi? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's futuristic. Yes, okay. it is. It is futuristic. Mm-hmm. But so evocative of today. Great listener chatters this week as ever. Tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest and the uh, chatter listener chatter I liked most came from at lazy underscore crazy daisy. It is an, a link to an NPR story, which is about the Hagia Sophia. I think that's how you say it, which is the huge now mosque in Istanbul, which was I a church that built as a, a church. Um, and what has happened is that uh, using um, really interesting audiology, audiological techniques, they popped a balloon in the Hagia Sophia. They just did one balloon pop and recorded it very well. And then taking the signature that that balloon pop, that noise makes, they were able to create essentially an audio filter so that any, you could put any sound into it and it would recreate what it would sound like in the Hagia Sophia. And so they've now recorded a bunch of the the Christian music, the medieval Christian music that would have been uh, sung there 700, 1,000 years ago. And there's an album of it. And it's the acoustics in that place are amazing. And this music sounds amazing. And so this um, it's, it's the voice of God. It is the voice of God. It's like the sound of if you what a heavenly choir would sound like if it was kind of trying to intimidate you. It's like a very intimidating heavenly choir. So listen to this uh, this segment on NPR. 
if you enjoyed the GabFest, and how could you not have enjoyed the GabFest if you've gotten this far? You, you must have enjoyed some of it. Maybe you've just railed against us. I don't know. Please subscribe to the show. That way you will get new episodes the second they are released. You can subscribe wherever you're listening to us. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Rosie Belson helped me here in D.C. Alan Pang, I think, is helping John in New York. Ryan McAvoy is with Emily in New Haven. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and I are the hosts of the GabFest. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Big news in literary, literary America and literary London this week. Hilary Mantle, who is the author, of course, of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, among other novels, has the third book in her Thomas Cromwell trilogy comes out this week. The book is called The Mirror and the Light. So she won the Booker Prize for her first two novels, which were about the life of Thomas Cromwell, who's this um, self-made man who rose to become the chief advisor, uh, enforcer, counsel to Henry VIII and helped him with his various uh, weddings and marriages. And Cromwell is depicted as this amazing figure. He, he, he'd gone down in history as a rather dark, sinister person, and Mantle's task was to revive him as a, as a modern man, as the, maybe the first modern man. And so her first, her first two books in the series are magnificent. I'm really looking forward to the third. Uh, and it got us thinking, what, who, who deserves the Thomas Cromwell treatment now? What episode, what person, what moment deserves a magnificent historical novel? So I have a bunch of thoughts about this, but uh, I'm you sure start, you guys do you too. You start. You're the best. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have like a lot of them, <laughs> and some of them are some of them are a counterfactual history, and some of them are real. So um, I would like to see uh, both. I feel two two women who have these cameos in history, and you're always like, what What else happened to them? What were their lives like? Yeah. How did they happen? Um, Sacagawea and Pocahontas. Um, both of whom have these small but seminal moments in American history. And you know, like, there's magnificent things and, like, fascinating things and tragic things, I think, especially in the life of Pocahontas, that uh, we miss. So I would love to, to see that. I would love a novel. Uh, I mean, Harriet Tubman has just gotten a movie treatment. Her life, when you go read about her life, it is just you cannot believe that any yeah. person could have led this life. And to have a novel, especially – so it's a whole second half post-Civil War life of hers that's incredible. So P Harriet Tubman, another one. Um, obviously, you know Ulysses S. Grant, who had the greatest American life of all. And he is he's our Thomas Cromwell. He's somebody who rose from nothing. To, to the most important fact in American history in my book is that in 18, late 1860, Ulysses S. Grant is basically indigent, begging for work on the streets of St. Louis, then as a, then as a junior clerk in a leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. And by 1862, he's the most successful general in the Union Army. By 1864, he is the commander of all of U.S. forces. By 1868, he's the president by acclamation. Uh, you know, what a, what a story. What a story that is, and then be, um, but, and then is and then falls from and, grace in history for until. and falls from grace in history, yes, but not not because he wasn't a great man, just because the lost cause. A uh, couple more. Sorry, I'm going to keep going. I got keep so many. Going. Here. Mm -hmm. I would like I would like a uh, counterfactuals. If Lincoln, that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a member today. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org.